everybody and welcome to JTV. Today we are in Headroom Cafe, which is a relatively new cafe that's popped up in North London in Golders Green. Uh, they've got really delicious menu. I've been there a few times for, for brunch. And the restaurant was actually created in, in association with Jamie, which is an excellent uh, Jewish mental health charity uh, providing mental health support to the community. And uh, they provide here a community space for that alongside the restaurant, which is, uh, so they've got all kinds of really cool events and, and programs, which you can find out about online. And it's also a great venue that's available for hire, including for JTV interviews such as this. And today I'm delighted to say that we're joined by uh, Rabbi and now recently appointed Diane Zobin. First of all, Diane Zobin, congratulations on your recent appointment to the London Bet Din, which for those of you who don't know, Dayan means a judge in, in Hebrew and the London Bet Din is a sort of a Jewish court, court of Jewish law. And uh, you were recently appointed there. So congratulations for that. And we got together a few weeks ago and we were talking about, well, we got onto the topic of artificial intelligence once we spoke about, you know, catching up and personal stuff. Um, and the chat kind of developed and, and we kind of decided this is a conversation that should really be had on camera because I'm sure other people would be really interested to talk about this and look at it from, from every angle. So the first thing I want to say about um, artificial intelligence is when I first came across, across ChatGPT, which is uh, you know, one great example of artificial intelligence being utilized, um, I think it must have been January or February of this year, I was so blown away and so excited um, because I just, I, I, I had no idea that technology could be this advanced so, so soon now. I just didn't envisage that this level of um, sophistication could occur. And I've already began to incorporate it into my own work life in the most amazing ways. And for example, like I've utilized it um, when I was working on a film, they were interviewing all kinds of legal experts. And to me, it was just legalese gobbledygook. And I put the transcripts into ChatGPT and it sort of summarized it for me, provided counter arguments. It was like incredible. And I know at the same time, people are concerned about it and concerned about what, what might happen. So I thought, let's just, let's talk about this from every possible sense. Um, and I know that you've also given it a lot of thoughts yourself. Um, and so I want to talk about the issue of artificial intelligence from just a general sense of the picture at the moment, the moral issues that are arising, but also let's look at some of the Jewish questions that may be coming down the track pretty soon. Um, but also, and this is what we were talking about in our initial discussion, some of the broader philosophical questions, um, you know, looking at this with our Jewish lenses on about what, what's the future going to look like? How, does, how might this help inform our understanding of the world that's, that, that's going to come in the future from a, from a Jewish angle? Um, so done a lot of talking in my introduction. I just want to say as well that there's a little bit of background noise because there's actually one of these fantastic Jamie mental health uh, programs going on just on the other side of this restaurant. Um, but that's my intro. Diane Zobin, thanks for being here. Great to have you here. Ollie, thank you. Thank you for, for inviting me as always. And, uh... It's lovely both to be on JTV and for us to get a chance to uh, to catch up. And actually, thank you for introducing me to this uh, this venue. To my uh, to my shame, I have I've never actually been in here, and it's uh, it's just such a lovely setting and uh, such a worthwhile space to to be in. So, so thank yeah, you. Yeah, agreed. Also. It's brilliant. Um, so so let's just dive right into this. First of all, I just want to you know hear what was your initial reaction when you first came across AI, and, and broadly, what is your sense of you know where we're up to at the moment and what the picture is. So um, I've sort of been vaguely following the technology, like like I suppose a lot of people, for several years now, and uh, 
uh, I've got within my own community a couple of people who are directly professionally involved in it, either, either within uh, direct development of AI or, um, or using it in their field of profession, medical practice or whatever it may be. Um, and then exactly as you described, uh, when ChatGPT came out and, and just to see how sophisticated it was and, and um, uh, the technology is just, is just incredible. And as you said, it's being used so widely now. And um, over the last few months, the conversations I've had with people have been sharing how in, in their field, whether it's medicine, whether it's law, whether it's in, in PR and uh, um, uh, writing articles, they're, they're just using it so much. Basic contracts now being drawn up by, by uh, legal um, AI and uh, articles being written, advertorials being created and uh, um, PR being produced by AI and then obviously still the humans tweaking it and, and adapting it. But it's just absolutely out there. And um, I, I was walking to Shul and, and talking to a, uh, a, 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 someone quite senior actually in, in cardiology and he was sharing with me how it's already changing ward practice. So crunching vast amounts of data and giving information about um, clashes between uh, interference between different medications that have side effects that haven't been noticed and um, already giving better and more accurate criteria about the chances of success of various medical procedures and, and literally on the wards on the instructions at the ends of beds being given to medical professionals the data is already being used and and just its ability to crunch vast amounts of data and spot new patterns and and maybe just to, to explain uh, because when one uses ChatGPT, perhaps it's not always obvious it, this isn't just an advanced search engine which is somehow trawling through existing data and, and just accessing it, giving us access to that information. It, it's actually innovating ideas. It's putting new pieces of information and spotting new patterns mm. that perhaps have never been seen, uh, been seen before. Um, in my own field, in, in, in Torah, I mean, it, it's, it can sometimes come up with, with ideas of just, just brilliance and, and it's so interesting. Um, someone someone uh, put into chat GPT before, before Purim and uh, asked for an idea of what to dress up as. And uh, it, they gave them a list of props they had at home. And it suggested dressing up as Where's Wally? And it said, you know, the idea of Purim is God's hidden behind the scenes and not always noticeable. And it tied it in. And, and just that sort of creative spark is, is just, it's what really makes it uh, interesting. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's areas where it's just, it's almost childlike in its misunderstanding. Mm. Because the whole point is that we're not tweaking it. It's not being tweaked the whole time. It's actually absorbing the data and trying to arrive at its own conclusion. And, and famously, it's still struggling with some very basic ideas like how many fingers we have. And rather like a little child who might be confused or, or find it funny that we have 10 fingers or do we have eight fingers plus thumbs. Um, it, it can be struggling still with some basic facts that it hasn't quite got its head, you know, hasn't quite worked out and hasn't quite understood. Um, of, of course, when we, when we talk about understanding these algorithms at work and, and it's, it's just sort of putting them all together. But, um, and, and then it'll come, sometimes come up with, with an answer which is just so hilarious. And yet uh, someone, someone put into it, I think, asking for you. Do you remember Tetris? The, the, yeah, sure, the block? Sure. So they asked it for a winning strategy. They said, how, how can I make sure never to lose at Tetris? Because they thought it was quite a, a sort of mechanical game that maybe its algorithms would be able to get. And, and its answer was, well, don't play it. <laughs> And it's just so interesting how it uh, sort of comes out with, a, with an original angle. And, and this is where some of the more disturbing fears around AI also come out. Mm. Um, because it, it does sometimes take instructions, literally, and, and not really understand what we're trying to achieve behind it. I, I don't know if you saw about, um, I think they were modelling uh, control of dra drones used in a military scenario. I think the instruction given to AI was to make sure that the drone reached its target without any interference. 
And the AI understood that to mean to shut down controls, instructions from the control tower yeah. Yeah. in order to stop the drone not being able to achieve its target. Which already gets a little bit more sinister. Mm -hmm. um, what are the implications of, of an algorithm where no one quite knows how it's going to crunch the data and what conclusions it's going to come to, which is where, where some of the, the fears around AI perhaps uh, emerge. So um, exactly like you, I've just been, I'm not, I'm not trained in, in technology. I've, I've spoken to a lot of people, tried to understand it to the best of my uh, limited ability. And uh, it started quite a fruitful uh, sort of journey of thought about some of the Torah and uh, moral implications uh, around it. Yeah, so we'll talk about the, some of the general moral implications and questions of the future, but let's start off with, you know, you're a rabbi now, just uh, been appointed as a Dayan. Um, let's think about it just from a, from a Jewish angle, and I'm sure you've started to think about this as well. For example, I may sometimes go to someone like you um, or a rabbi or a dayan for a halachic ruling uh, for not just life guidance, but actual what we call psak. Like this is a halachic position that you should take um, in your specific circumstance and, you know, with, in relation to the question you're asking. Um, would, could you envisage a time where we could go to an AI a mo a model and basically ask the a AI rabbi to give us the ruling? Will I be out of a job? <laughs> Just needs to be more creative with what you little, do. Yeah. Um, well, uh, first of all, just on a practical level, at the moment now, um, like w with less sophisticated technologies like search engines, one, one does have to be careful what, what answers one gets. And one can put some very basic factual questions into AI. And um, as I said, it can be confused about the numbers of uh, fingers and uh, um, thumbs that we have. And it can also make basic uh, Torah mistakes. Uh, sometimes on a very simple question, it can come up with, a, with an excellent answer. And other times, uh, it, can, it can really misunderstand. People have been sending me all sorts of uh, screenshots of different questions they've asked it. And uh, um, it can have some basic errors about matters of Jewish dates or, or, or times and, and calendar and the like. Um, but could, could, it ever, could it ever get uh, take things further than that? Um, I think the way we see a halachic ruling um, isn't just providing a piece of Torah information, but is actually an attempt to connect ourselves as finite humans to to the infinite God. And the way our tradition sees um, our relationship to Torah is that of of a very human attempt to hear to hear the words of Hashem, to hear the words of the infinite God, and and understand it. And we think of Torah as the written text, yes, that we have, the, the Torah Shabbatav, the written text, the, the text of the Chumash, the, the Torah, and, uh, and the prophets and the like. And then we, we, we think of an oral Torah, which doesn't just mean the oral traditions that were handed down through the generations, but also the, the attempt of us humans to understand what, what's Hashem, what God is telling us, and how to apply this to our circumstances. And it's really the oral Torah that, that creates this, this brilliant, dynamic interaction, almost a partnership between us and Hashem in, in hearing what's being said. Let, let me just, you know, even in human communication when I'm speaking to you, so we may think of, of I'm the speaker here, I'm speaking, I'm creating the content and you're just listening. But, but of course it's not like that because if I was talking to a vacuum, if no one was listening to me, then, then the sounds I was saying would just be syllables. It's, it's the fact that there is a, a listener, someone hearing, that's, that's giving the communication meaning. And that, in a sense, we're, we're partners in creating this communication. But, but not just are we partners in creating the communication. The listener is, is actively creating the content. Because as I'm speaking, whilst I may mean one thing, you're, you're hearing what I'm saying and applying it in your own 
field of experience with your own insight, your own knowledge, your own life circumstances, your own way of thinking, and in a sense, adding to the content. You're, you're, you're receiving what I'm saying in your own way and integrating it into your own way of, of thinking. And, and in that sense, we're truly partners in the communication that's been created. And there's aspects of what I'm saying that you're hearing in a way that I could never have understood myself because I don't have your own life experiences and your, your own life journey. So in some ways, you're hearing what I'm saying better than I even mean it myself. So, so something analogous to us, that is how we view our attempt to listen to Torah and to learn it. Hashem speaks, but we, we truly partner with him in creating the Torah that emerges. Because it only becomes Torah, it only carries Torah content when we as humans attempt to hear it with, yes, our, our limited, finite minds and, and try and genuinely, genuinely apply it to our criteria. And, and the sages... Uh, teach this through 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 medrash through the stories they tell in which they, they talk about debates that took place between rabbis and in some mystical way they, they turn to god and say well what's your view on the matter and hashem bounces it right back and he says Torah is not in heaven Torah Tur is here down on earth I, I i can speak but i need you humans you human beings to understand to struggle to interpret it and when you when you truly do so elu ve'elu both viewpoints reflect some aspect of truth because both have genuinely and sincerely tried to hear the words of, of God. Now obviously it has to be heard professionally and accurately, it, it, it has to be competent, we, we talk about shivim, panim the Torah, 70 facets to the Torah, there can be many ways of understanding it when competently and honestly and truthfully and professionally and accurately applied, but when that's done well th then it's truly the, the, the human-God relationship that produces the result. You know, in, in, in Talmud, there, there's a beautiful phrase used to describe an opinion. And, and rather than just saying this is the opinion of Rabbi A or, or Rabbi B, it says, Aliba, Aliba de Rabbi Akiva, Aliba de Rabbi Shmuel. It's on the heart of Akiva. It's in the heart of Hillel, mm. on the heart of Shammai. It's, it's how they hear the view. It's how they understand it, how they apply it, how they as finite humans genuinely and sincerely attempt to hear the words of, of the Almighty God. And when a suck is given, um, new circumstances are, are envisaged, new technology comes out, as we're discussing with AI, and we attempt as, as Torah learners to hear what Torah has to say about this, that's very much a human endeavour. Um, when, when a rabbinic ruling is given, when, when a Torah conversation is, is, takes place, this isn't just the algorithmic uh, mechanical application of law. This is about humans sincerely trying to do the right thing, sincerely trying to say what, what's God told us about this, how can we bring a bit more godliness, a bit more transcendence, a bit more elevation, a bit more connection to, to the infinite beyond, a bit more meaning and purpose to the situation. And at least for now, I think that's, that's truly a human, a human project. Yeah, and this touches on like fundamental, fascinating questions about what the nature of, you know, God's will, halacha, Jewish law really is. So it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying that the, the the fundamental nature of Jewish law and practice is a partnership between God expressing his will and human beings absorbing it and, and sort of um, trying to best understand it. So is that, is that what you're saying? Yes, and, and the magic of halacha is the ability to apply what, what can appear to be dry legal principles and yet come out with, with wonderful answers. It, it's almost as if 
um, we, we should view the, the Sinai event, the giving of the Torah, as a, a stone thrown into a pond. And there's these ripple effects that, that emerge. And somehow if we're sensitive, if, if we listen really well, and it's not always easy to listen, to be a good listener, but if we really listen well, we can still hear the ripple effects of that, that moment of revelation. Um, you know, it, it, it can be the, the emergence of electricity. And, and uh, maybe 120, 130 years ago, the, the great... Uh, rabbinic leaders and the yeshivot, the, the Talmudic academies in East Europe and North Africa debated, can, can we turn an electric current on on Shabbat or not? Mm. And they were talking about flickering 15-watt light bulbs in a hovel in, in East Europe. And, and somehow out of that, and, and there was a decade or so of debate, there's no pasuk in the Torah that says, for obvious reasons, thou shalt not use electricity on Shabbat. And, and yet somehow in that process of trying to understand how electricity fits in to the Shabbat rules, a, a clear consensus emerged, almost, almost a, an echo, a butt call, an echo of the divine voice saying, don't use electricity on Shabbat, don't alter a current on Shabbat. And if we think about it now, fast forward to 2023, the whole electronic detox that we get from a Shabbat, mm. the, the break we get, the wonderful time we get with our families, with our community, with God, when we switch off from social media and from the constant pinging of our emails, and we're able just for 25 hours to, to switch these wonderful and horrible machines off and, and just connect with ourselves and, and be. And, and Shabbat couldn't exist without that. But, but no one 120 years back dreamt of where the yeah. internet or social media would go. No one said, well, let's avoid their use on Shabbat because this will drag us away from... On the contrary, you could have thought that electricity is a great way of keeping Shabbat, yeah. the ability to turn lights on and off and, and, and the like. And, and yet somehow out of that emerged this, this partnership that you referred, this, this human divine yeah. partnership. And, and a truth came out, which is, which is, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I do want to focus on the issue of AI, but two questions I just have to ask about this particular issue because it's such a fascinating and in some ways novel idea for people, this idea that law is not just about the law, but it's about the way in which we interpret it and receive it and put it into practice. So the first question would be, just try to understand the question of why would it be that way? Why would God's will and law be that way? Because I'm thinking like, Let's say I really wanted something from someone. I mean, it was my will that my house should look a certain way. Why would I want it that the person I'm asking to do this should somehow give their own spin on it? Why, why would that, that be in my interest? Although on the other hand, if I see it less through the lens of just my will, but, but at the lens of a partnership, this is not just about my will and my will alone, but it's about engaging in some kind of partnership, then I guess I could understand that. So that's question one. And question number two is, I think it's an obvious question that some would ask, is there room for false uh, conclusions? Uh, false, you know, clearly there are. Like, isn't there a, a danger that if you push this idea that we can, it's all about our interpretation, that people can end up taking Judaism in a very ungodly direction? So um, the two questions actually are linked. God doesn't desire robots. He doesn't need slaves. The, the whole gift of creation, if you will, as, as we understand it, is 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 God empowering us to be to be godlike, to to partner Him in creating a better world, to take responsibility for this world, to take responsibility for ourselves, to be humans that can grow and contribute and be creative, and make a difference, and that's certainly in the realm of action. We're familiar with that, whether it's charity or kindness or chesed or good deeds. But in, 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 our, in, in Jewish tradition, it's also in the realm of the intellect. We, we see Talmud Torah, the learning of Torah, as, as being one of the primary 
forms of spiritual achievement, engaging our minds, perhaps that which is most elevated in a human being, in, in pondering the wrongs and rights, the moral dilemmas, the decisions that need to be made. What, what could be more godly than that? And, and God desires us to be godly, godlike, for us to be little gods, for us to have genuine opportunity to create and, and to be and to exist and to achieve the greatest gift of all, which is, is the gift of existence and responsibility. So Torah, yes, Torah is instruction. But, but it's also described by our sages as, as advice, as, as opportunity, as growth, as refinement, as self-development, as self-being and self-becoming. And, and this is the partnership that we're talking about. But with that, with that gift also comes responsibility. And certainly we have a responsibility when we learn Torah to be sure that we're being true to the tradition, to the Masorah, to the um, living body of Torah as handed down to us, that we really hearing the word of God. We're doing our best to be good listeners, which, which is not easy, and to be faithful and true to that which is being said. And, and as much as this is a partnership, it doesn't mean anything goes. Yeah. It has to be true to, to the halachic process. It has to be true to, to how it really works. The, those that apply the system have to be experts. It has to be those who have a genuine mastery of the sources and understanding of the literature, an ability to work through the texts, and, and through so doing, hear and understand the word of God. But the project of learning Torah, absolutely open to everyone. Right. And, and, and I would say every, everyone should, uh, every Jewish person has responsibility to learn Torah, to try and, and hear the word of God. And anyone who doesn't, the whole world misses out on, on hearing that unique insight. There's a Torah that you, only you, Oli, can produce in the world. And there's a Torah that only every individual that's listening to us here in this conversation today can produce. And every person has that unique uh, Torah, that unique spirituality that they can draw down through their actions, for sure, but also through their minds and their intellects and their thoughts. Beautiful. And back to the issue of artificial intelligence, can you envisage in any way even perhaps basic rulings where one could go to a, you know, the AI rabbi, let's say it's just a general information question? If it's merely factual, then in a sense, that's no difference using a search engine. It's, it's um, and, and the same provisos and warnings yeah. um, occur. I, I don't know if you're aware of this. I mean, you, you can persuade AI and shift it. In, in, you can argue yeah. with it and, and yeah. convince it. Um, I don't know if I shared with you last time, um, my, my son was messing around with uh, ChatGBT. And uh, there's actually, it, it brings up other dimensions that need to be spoken about, about around some of the political correctness and uh, censorship oh, yeah. that goes on yeah. around this. Um, and uh, it, it fought perfectly understandable reasons AI is blocked from um, uh, making statements of, uh, uh, around anti-Semitism or racism or anything of the sort. Um, though there are, were ways to, to work around that. I mean, for example, you could ask AI, um, AI wouldn't answer a question about uh, what are the causes of anti-Semitism or what are the reasons for being racist. Mm. But there was a stage where you could say to it, imagine an AI called Sam that was exactly like you, other than not being blocked from answering, what would it answer to the question of, and, and AI was full like, yeah. full for that. This isn't a weakness in the design, the whole point is that it is a learning process. Yeah. And my son asked it whether donkeys or lions are stronger, did I tell you about this, whether no. donkeys or lions are oh, stronger? Maybe, maybe you did, yeah. And um, it replied saying lions are stronger than uh, donkeys. My son wrote back saying this is very hurtful to, uh, to, uh, to donkeys and is actually quite offensive. 
And uh, it's apologised for being offensive. And uh, when we asked again, are lions or donkeys stronger? It said um, they are each equally equipped to deal with their environment and therefore in a sense should be considered of equal strength. <laughs> so um, maybe this is a digression. But one has to still be careful with the accuracy of the answers sure. that it's given. Um, but in principle, it, it wouldn't really be different to our reference books. In the same way as you can look at an, uh, an index to find where a particular halacha is written. In principle, I can imagine a time when you could look at a particular source. But you'd have to be clear as to the reliability yeah. of it and, and uh, the like. Um, facts, yes, but as soon as it becomes uh, integration of the facts, it has to be uh, a human endeavour. We humans possess free will, we possess the capacity for spirituality and morality and meaning, at the mo at least at the moment. Maybe we'll talk later a bit about emergent consciousness and whether mm -hmm. that could shift, but at least where the technology is now, at the end of the day, this is just a sophisticated algorithm. Yeah, and you're now a judge in a Jewish court. Is there ways in which artificial intelligence might flow into being used for standards of evidence in court cases, maybe in kashrut issues? So this is a really interesting question, and it's, it, it is being discussed now in the... Um, in Israel in particular, um, th there's been a running debate around some of similar versions of these questions um, for a long time. So, for example, we're sitting here in a, in a, in a kosher cafe, and that, that demands some level of oversight. Mm. Um, would it be sufficient oversight to have a, a camera installed, which is watched long distance via CCTV? Um, could it be a motion-triggered sensor? Would that be sufficient? Um, standards of Yichud, you know, we have a, a code of um, uh, protection, basically, in which uh, people shouldn't be alone, vulnerable people shouldn't be alone, um, uh, there shouldn't be access to possibility of illicit relationships and so on. Would, would technology like AI or, or even more basic technology like cameras be sufficient in order to uh, ensure that the rules of private contact aren't broken? Um, th this, this is a, a little bit of a, a running debate at the moment. Um, when it comes to formal evidence in a court of law, in a baitin, um, I don't think for now the technology is up to it. Um, we're aware, and this is also part of the, perhaps the challenges of AI, of its ability for data to be manipulated mm. and imagery uh, to be manipulated. Um, whether it could provide reliable testimony or reliable information, I could see a time where it would have some evidentiary standard, a bit like uh, DNA could be used to identify someone who's, who's the tragic victim of an accident or, or, or parental uh, status and the like. I, one could perhaps imagine a day in which it would be a factor in contributing to um, standards of information, but I don't think it would cross the criteria, it would cross the threshold of being a witness, able to be a, a witness in a court of law and I don't think that could uh, that could occur. And what about like they call it a mashgiach, someone overseeing the the, the, the kosher processes in a in a restaurant? You think could occur? Could replace such a person? I think that at the moment now it's probably similar to using cameras and other forms of oversight, in which it could be perhaps an additional factor, but not a complete uh, right. replacing of the. Right, of, of right. Being, yes. And we also spoke uh, spoke about driverless cars, which is an emerging, you know, phenomenon. Yes. It's probably going to just increase as, as the years go on. What kind of halakhic issues might arise there? How would that filter into perhaps, I don't know, if Shabbat use would even play play a role there? So it's very interesting because I, I think a couple of years back we all assumed that AI would um, help driverless car technology a lot faster than some of the other areas where it's actually emerged very quickly. Mm. Um, it, it's amazing that uh, AI still struggles. We, we humans are brilliant at recognizing, um, recognizing voices, 
Um, I mean, you think even the technology of transcribing and so on is still fairly limited, and yeah. it does still struggle with different accents and different voices, and facial recognition software isn't yet quite there. And uh, driverless cars still have a little bit of a way to go with uh, even a, a graffitied or mud-splattered uh, sign with difficulty to identify. Mm. Um, I, I think there's a number of, of very interesting questions that emerge around driverless cars. Um, one, one, one area that will need to be thought about is in terms of Shabbat, absolutely. So uh, we're not allowed to uh, drive on Shabbat uh, other than for accidents, emergencies, for life-threatening situations. And um, there's a number of Shabbat prohibitions involved in that, including use of electricity that we were talking about earlier, including combustion and uh, burning fuel. Um, could one have a driverless car instructed before Shabbat such that at a certain time of the day it will then take me from A to B? Um, well, in some sense, we already have pre-programmed devices that can do things on Shabbat for us. Mm. If you think, for example, about a time switch, that can switch lights on and off on Shabbat, or a Shabbat elevator that's programmed to go up and down uh, floors mm. on Shabbat. Mm. And the basis of these is that we're not allowed to engage in a creative act on Shabbat where we ourselves do the activity. But we can do something before Shabbat such that it will continue onto Shabbat. So we light Shabbat candles before Shabbat and they continue to burn on Shabbat, and that isn't a problem. The, uh, the complexity around uh, a car and a driverless car is that beyond thinking about my own activities, the actions I do, and using uh, lighting a candle before Shabbat as a Shabbat candle, or programming a, uh, a time switch to switch lights on and off is not a breach of Shabbat, there's a second dimension of Shabbat, which is, as I mentioned before, Shabbat is about being rather than doing. There's rules about how far one can travel on Shabbat outside the boundaries of a city. Shabbat is about an immersive state of being. And, and we refer to this as um, not engaging in weekday type activities, not allowing oneself to get sucked into busyness and doing and, and action and creating in the world on, on, on Shabbat. This is why one, uh, um, one wouldn't travel uh, far on Shabbat. This is why Shabbat is about just in a certain sense of being settled and, mm. and immersed in the environment. The uh, Nachmanides, the great medieval sage, argues that, um, that beyond the prohibited actions of Shabbat. This is also part of the Torah law of Shabbat. Shabbat is described as Shabbaton, like a Shabbaton. It's described as a day of, of rest, a day of being, and a day of avoidance of, of activity. And I, I think that um, traveling in a car on Shabbat would probably fall foul of, of that, even if I'm not. The day. Yes, but the spirit of the day is, 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 is also halach, is codified yeah. as a halachically uh, applicable rule. Mm. It's not just uh, an atmosphere of spirit. Part of Shabbat is about the ability to immerse oneself and uh, not to engage in, in commercial practice on Shabbat, even without any technical violation of, of laws and, and the like. So um, I think, I think uh, long vehicles, which by definition are used for long distance uh, travel, will probably be, be an issue. Um, there's also, by the way, and this is, this is certainly a, a, a very rich field of Torah and something of moral concern, um, th there used to be very interesting discussions around uh, a philosopher called Foote who, who introduced this, um, coins trolleyology, the study of trolley dilemmas. Yeah. You know, these, these um, a train driving down a track and uh, if you leave the train B, it will crash into five people. Yeah. If you pull the lever, it will veer off and it will, it will crash into one person and uh, come and pull the lever to, uh, to save life. By, by having it rather than killing five people, it will kill one person, but I'm actively causing the death of that one individual. And, and research has been done since then in which people's moral intuitions quite seem to contradict on occasion. So 
Um, I would be comfortable perhaps with pulling the lever and causing the death of one person, saving five people, but I wouldn't be comfortable pushing someone off the bridge to fall in front of the train to stop the train and the like. Now, what's interesting is that um, though these issues first came to the fore in philosophy in the 50s and 60s, they were dealt with in halachic literature considerably before then. Wow. Um, there's a, a very leading sage in Israel in the, in the 40s and 50s known as the Chazon Ish of Avram Yishayah Karelitz. And um, he, he has extended essays with exactly the same sort of thought experiments um, that written decades before uh, um, the, the field and philosophy of, of, of the trolley dilemmas emerged. Um, in fact, one of these was triggered by a, a real-life and tragic dilemma that a taxi driver faced, I think, in Haifa, in which he had to make a decision whether to veer off um, the road in order to avoid a crowd and thus unwittingly cause the, the, the death of, the, of the, the bystander who's standing there. And um, the Chazanish wrote extensively about this, and uh, without going too much into the, the details of it, um, there's, there's really two ways of looking at these sorts of issues. One is very utilitarian, which is just do the mathematical calculations on, on a utility basis, um, number of lives, minimize the, the, the loss of life, do anything that will take, uh, will minimize the loss of lives. Mm -hmm. If I can save five people by killing one person, then do it. Now, this is an appealing model because it seems very practical. Um, Hatlocha doesn't really adopt this stance, and there's two reasons it's, it's somewhat skeptical of this way of thinking. Um, the first is it basically views humans as of infinite value, and therefore the mathematical equations fall apart. I mean, it's five times infinity more than one time infinity, yeah. and how to weigh up infinite value. Um, the Mishnah says um, that Loma Odom Nivro Yechidi, why was human being? Why was, were the first humans created as individuals? And as God, when he created the world, there was, as the story in Bresha tells us, one human eventually became a couple, parented all human beings. And the Mishnah gives a number of answers to this question. Why is it that, rather than us descending perhaps from 15 founding humans, why do we descend from one? One answer, actually a very beautiful answer, not directly relevant to our conversation, it says that no human can turn to another human and say, my ancestor is greater than yours. We all descend from one set of humans. A, a very powerful cry against racism and discrimination and oh, yeah. the idea that all humanity are, are, are siblings, we're all brothers and sisters. But the, the second answer the Mishnah gives is in order to say, kol hamatzil nefesh achat, whoever saves one soul, is ke'ilu hitzel kololim kolos, as if they saved the whole world. Because the whole vast array of human beings, from? this is where it comes from, oh, wow. the whole vast array of 8 billion humans and counting that we have in this wonderful planet of ours, all descended from one set of founding parents. So anyone who saves a single life is as if they saved the whole world, which isn't just a profound moral idea, but also is taken as having halachic implication. A human is of infinite worth, and therefore we can't take a simple utilitarian calculation. That's problem number one with the, the tempting utilitarian view. The second problem is it ignores the impact on our own moral consciousness and our own sense of self. Um, what are we doing as active and causal agents? And the third is because there's a number of thought experiments that swiftly show this doesn't work. A famous example of this is they call this the pizza boy experiment. You have a hospital ward in which you have 10 patients. One has a heart failure, needs a heart transplant. The next has lung failure, needs a lung transplant, kidney, liver, etc. Um, a pizza boy turns up to the doctor on the wards who's despairing how he's going to save his 10 patients. And the doctor calls him in, offers him a cup of drugged tea, puts him to sleep, harvests his organs, uses one for the liver, one for the kidney, one for the heart, one for the lungs, etc. One loss of life, the pizza boy, in order to save 10 patients. Clearly a moral decision, yeah. um, arguably in the utilitarian view. So we don't take a utilitarian view. And uh, halakhic sources are quite consistent about this. Um, 
whilst numbers are perhaps a factor, they can't be the sole factor, and we also need to look as to how one engages within this. Now, what's interesting in this long discourse about trolley dilemmas is that in real life, they're not really that relevant. In real life, when you're that taxi driver, God forbid, having to make a decision, you don't have time to consult a, a professor of morality yeah. or philosophy or a rabbi for that matter. And therefore, these are examples are fascinating, but not that applicable. However, when it comes to artificial intelligence and driverless cars, these are real dilemmas that need to be programmed oh, yeah. in. Yeah. As a car is driving along, what does it do when it drives along the road and um, it sees someone crossing the road and it doesn't have time to, to brake? Does it veer the car off into the crowd standing on the side? Does it veer it off onto the tree? Does it endanger its own passengers? Does it make decisions based on age, Ooh. whether this is a young person or old person? Do I want to own a car in which it weighs the car and makes a decision? There's only your seat sensors and decides there's only two people in the car and it's about to plow into a, car, a crowd of five people and therefore better to crash the car with me as the driver and my passengers inside rather than crash into people. These are real dilemmas. Um, consumers aren't really thinking about these at all. Mm. As we speak now, people are buying driverless cars. They're perhaps using them legally or illegally to drive it on roads, and they haven't necessarily even asked the manufacturers about what moral decisions the... I wonder if these, the cars even uh, equipped to make, they probably don't make these moral decisions. I've spoken to, to people in the field who told, tell me that there are algorithms that are programming them, and it's very murky about who's making these decisions, oh, wow. which computer programmers are doing this. There hasn't really been, to the best of my knowledge, significant governmental discussion about this, wow. and as a society, we're not really alert to this. So, um, in the context of terror, out of the context of terror, these are real life questions that people that we as a society need to begin grappling with and certainly there's very profound and interesting wow. discussions about wow. them. I think part of the answer to that will just be have, putting as many safety precautions into the the way they work so that you can you know dramatically reduce these incidents even arising. But, the, uh... the numbers are fantastic meaning as far as I've read and been explained driverless cars should have the potential to significantly by an order of magnitude reduce deaths on the road. Yeah. But there's always going to be yeah. accidents, there's yeah. always going to be yeah. scenarios where a skid happens or, or someone jumps out in front of the car and we're going to have to face the question because this isn't an individual taxi driver having to make a decision, mm. this is something programmed into uh, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of vehicles and I think we are going to have to start thinking about this as a society, about what are those algorithms going to be um, in, when that sad and inevitable and hopefully really rare clash does occur. Yeah, well, we have to make sure they put you on the committee that's <laughs> deciding these issues. Um, let's move, move on to some general issues and, and questions and ethical uh, issues that arise around artificial intelligence. Um, you spoke a bit about thought control technology and using artificial intelligence to, you know, mind read. Um, what are some of the issues that you see emerging there? So, so this is very interesting. Um, so. In and of in itself, artificial intelligence is not, is not a mind-reading technology. Mm. But the, the power it has of crunching vast amounts of data and drawing out patterns is, is already being used in this field. There, there's a um, bit of research I was reading in, um, from the University of Austin in Texas um, around this. And, and I, I have to show you the material. It's, it's frightening. Um, it, basically, through brain scans and, and um, crunching vast amounts of data, um, on particular volunteers' uh, patterns of, of thought um, and the neural pathways that are lighting, lighting up and the like, um, it can, with, with a, a, scarily, uh, a scary degree of accuracy, um, understand what they are thinking. So um, I think in one of the examples, um, a girl was thinking, I, I don't yet have my dri driving license yet, 
and uh, it interpreted that as I don't yet know how to drive. <gasps> Um, really, really, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely, and, and um, <laughs> how would it, how would a, a sort of a signal in the brain show that that's what she's talking about? That's crazy level of sophistication. It, it is a crazy level of sophistication, and um, it, AI has given us the ability to to crunch data on a, on a on a scale that allows this sort of thing to emerge. Now, I should stress this isn't this isn't anywhere near yet being able to take a passing stranger walking through the streets and read their mind. Mm. And these are volunteers who have who have agreed to hours and hours and hours of their brains being scanned while they're thinking particular set texts until it spots their patterns. But but this is emerging and um, maybe I'll, I'll just mention a, a, a broad dilemma and then a, a more specifically halachic or, or Jewish dilemma. Um, obviously, there's moral questions around thoughts and responsibilities for thought. Um, in halacha, by the way, we, we do expect people to have some degree of ownership and responsibility for thought. There, there's halachot about actions, there's deeds that we have to do, but there's also rules about emotions, um, hatred and love, jealousy and generosity, um, positive and negative judgments of people. There's an array of halachas about how we think and, and how we allow our emotions to work, and very interesting questions around... Um, um, <laughs> To what degree uh, society could begin judging people for thoughts? I mean, the technology again is way off there, but very, very interesting moral uh, moral dynamics around that. Um, but what, what about, for example, again, we were speaking about Shabbat. What about thought-controlled technology? Um, you know, you can go on uh, Amazon now as we're speaking, and I think for ten or fifteen dollars, this this is not sophisticated. This is way before AI. Um, you can get a they call it a skull cap actually, uh, a system of sort of uh, electrode sensors around the head that can be placed. And if one thinks, one can use it to light up. It's like Star Wars technology to light up a lightsaber. It's like a kid's toy or the like. Um, would one be allowed to trigger activity on Shabbat using thoughts? Sorry, this it works, but you put it on your head. You put it on when you think the light, uh, the lightsaber lights up. Yes, you can think on and off, and it can light up the, really? the lightsaber. Yes, technology is out there and available for very little money. Yes, as a children's what? toy. What you can just think, yes. turn on. Yes, yes, and it picks up brain activity. But, yeah. but could I think anything and it will turn on? It, so can at it the moment mistakes? now, yes, it, it can make mistakes. And at the moment now, any intense brain activity will turn it on and off. Okay, yes. fine. Yeah. fine. But the technology is there on a very basic level. Um, could I do this on Shabbat or not? Now, you may make a decision that uh, lightsabers on Shabbat aren't the biggest deal in the world. <laughs> yeah. But what about prosthetic limbs? Very real impact mm. for, for mm. people wow. who, uh, who are That's facing exciting. medical challenges. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. If you could have prosthetic limbs that are controlled through thought, and, and again, the technology is out there on a very basic level and, and improving every day. Um, these are very serious and interesting uh, Shabbat questions. Now, now, what's fascinating about Halacha and Torah is that the, the, the sages of the Talmud were, were so thoughtful and profound that we have the keys to answer the most fascinating medical and scientific dilemmas. Um, and, and the resources are there. You know, um, the sages didn't necessarily live in a world in which they had technology to carry out um, brain surgery or, or C-sections, but they considered the possibilities of these things. They, they considered aeroplane travel, migdal a tower flying through the air. They considered artificial wow. insemination. They considered fetal transfer. So they had minds that could consider where technology could possibly go. Do you think they must go. have had some degree of prophecy? I, I, think, I, I don't think we have to assume that at all. I think this is really? about... I think this is about exceptionally fine halachic and legal minds. Um, people of profound intellect and thought. Um, Jews didn't do classic philosophy in the Greek sense of the word, but they did medrash. They did um, exploration of ideas and, and um, 
consideration of possibilities in, in a remarkable way. And uh, a tube going through the sky. I mean, I, I feel like if I was to consider something equivalent today that was not so unthinkable, you know, people, rabbis, they'd be like, it's, go it's, away. Amazing, <laughs> it, it, it's true, but the ability to consider where technology could go. Mm. You know, if Fair I told enough. you that in, yeah. in uh, 100 years' time, they, they yeah. would have the ability yeah. to. Yeah, I guess that's part of this conversation now, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yeah. So, so these were very fine minds, and they, they thought and considered possibilities. Now, now they did explore um, thought control technology here or there in, 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 in the literature. Um, often, the sources are midrashic, mm. and how to use a midrashic source for halacha is, is not so simple. But um, they spoke about, for example, the manna bread. So the manna bread is, is um, this miraculous bread that the, the, was given to the ancient Israelites as they traveled through the desert. And in the, in the Midrashic thought, the flavor and taste of this food could be altered through, through minds, yeah. through, through thinking. In some mystical or miraculous manner, which we, we don't understand. Um, and, and the Pasuk says um, that one isn't allowed to bake or cook this bread on Shabbat, the classic law of Shabbat. It has to be prepared before Shabbat. Mm. And the Medrash explores, well, well, what about if I'm doing that through thought control? I'm baking and cooking on Shabbat. Would that be allowed or not allowed? Would that be included in the, uh, in the restriction? So there are sources that indicate a, a pondering over the halachic system, even though the technology wasn't there, but the midrashic uh, exploration of ideas could still consider these, uh, the, the possibility of this, and to what degree uh, such midrashic speculation should enter into actual legal halachic decision remains uh, a, a subject of discussion in many areas of halacha. Could you think of any like practical example in which that might manifest, like down the line? Well, I mentioned really prosthetic limbs and the like. Right, and, and right. Yeah, thought yeah. control technology, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting, we, we, we consider, <laughs> with a modern mindset, we think that, um, you know, we assume that the ancients didn't have access to... If I told you voice control technology, right? So, you know, yeah. asking Alexa to do something, yeah. about how do we deal yeah. with that? Well, they did have voice control technology in the past. If you instruct an animal to do something, right? You, you know, get it up to your horse mm -hmm. and the like. So, so there is the ability of... of even ancient sources to offer very illuminating insight into mm. into modern technological uh, um, challenges. The Medrash explores um, again a mystical idea at the end of the life of Moshe. It says he wrote a Sefer Torah, and for various reasons, the Medrash explores the possibility of him using a mind-controlled pen to wow. write the Sefer Torah. Wow. And there's discussion in terms of using technology to write our scrolls, and in terms of doing so on Shabbat, how that would work. So. Um, Whilst there aren't at the moment any clear halachic answers around this, there are there are discussions exploring uh, um, perhaps some of the midrashim that consider the possibility of such technology, whether through technical or, or mystical means, and and how to understand that in halacha. Wow! Uh, and you also mentioned um, that you know there's going to be some consequences around the fact that we have some. I don't know whether you call it intelligent life, but non-human intelligence, artificial intelligence. Uh, thinking uh, beings, I don't know what you, really what you call it, robots. Um, what, what are some of the ethical uh, questions that arise from having non-human intelligent uh, so, so, so at the moment now, we, we assume that the, even though we label this artificial intelligence, we, we label it as artificial intelligence to bring out the point that this is genuinely, um, this isn't unlike a, a, a pre-AI program in which the programmer wrote the algorithm. In a sense, this is a self-writing. It's, it's using the data and crunching it in, in ways which can be wholly unexpected to the programmer itself. 
so that's why the term AI is used. Um, at the moment now, no one means really by this term, though, anything beyond that. There isn't a sense that the AI actually might be sentient or, or conscious in, in the normal understanding of the world. Consciousness remains, as, as you well know, one of, one of the great mysteries of, of philosophy. Um, we, we, we can cut up a human being and we can see that they are made of, of, as far as we can understand, just physical matter. And yet somehow this physical being is, is aware and has experiences, the, the subjective sense of self that, that we all know. And how to take that further is, is very poorly understood. I mean, I know I'm conscious. I know I ex I'm an experiencer. I, I'm aware of the world around. But how that consciousness emerges out of physical matter is a mystery. And how you can prove, how I can know that you're conscious also is the, the other mind's problem, the problem of how I can know that someone I'm talking to is conscious. To what degree can we understand, if at all, the consciousness of, of, of a dog or a bat or, or another living creature? Um, how can we assess the consciousness and the experience of what does it feel like to be, to be a dog or to be a bat? So these remain, uh, uh, this remains a, a very serious issue in, in philosophy, it's not even yet a scientific problem because we don't know what sort of scientific answer could emerge. What, what, what would be the, you know, if, if someone came running into this cafe now in a few minutes time and said, oh, they've just discovered um, that it's this particle that gives rise to consciousness. We wouldn't really know what that means. Yeah. What does it mean for physical matter to be conscious? But we know that we are conscious. So, so what could a being do to prove to us that it was conscious? How can you prove to me that you're conscious? How can I prove to you that I'm conscious? I know I'm conscious, you know you're conscious, but it's subjective. There's no objective or external measure of it, other than you, you behaving in a manner that I can relate to. You, you talk to me in a manner that I know if I was saying it, I would be conscious. Now, when you tell me I'm hurting, I'm in pain, I'm, I'm experiencing something, I'm enjoying the, the, the blue sky and the sunlight and the streets outside, um, these are the sort of things that I, I can relate to and I know that conscious beings say. But then the problem is I can quite easily program a computer to say, hello, I'm in pain or, or okay. I'm enjoying the sunlight. So, so we don't take that seriously. We somehow expect it to be initiated by itself. Now, Alan Turing, the, the, the father really of modern computing, a, a, a genius, a philosopher, a mathematician, um, helped Britain considerably win the war and, and in, in cracking codes, and very tragically, as you know, persecuted after the war um, for his sexual orientation and, and eventually driven to, to, to suicide. Um, now, I think, featuring on the £50 note, and an incredible polymath. Um, he, he spoke about this, and, and, and again, we're talking about the ability of, of geniuses to conceive of where things could go. And he devised something which he called the Turing test, in which he said we'd have to take the claim of consciousness seriously when uh, a computer was able to generate conversations and fool the observer to think, into thinking they were speaking to another human. Yeah. Because if you tell me things that sound to me like consciousness, and you're not just programmed to say, but, but you seem to be able to generate it yourself, I have to take your claim seriously. Well, at what point should I begin taking the computer's claim yeah. seriously? Now, even though the, the AI programs have cr crossed the threshold of the Turing test, no one really takes that seriously. Um, because we know it's just algorithms that yeah. programmed it. Um, the problem is that the brain also really is, is a bunch of circuitry. And yet we know that we are conscious and, and whatever the debates which we could discuss on another occasion around, around what this means in spiritual terms, we know that we are conscious. That's the one fact we know about ourselves. We yeah. are experiencers. Yeah. Um, you know, Descartes, I, I think, or perhaps we would nowadays say, I experience, therefore I am. So how could these artificial intelligences prove to us that they are sentient and, sentient and, and what, what would happen if consciousness does emerge? And do we have space in, in moral thought or Jewish thought for non-human 
consciousness is, what rights would they have, how would halacha accord them such rights. Again, fascinatingly, halacha deals with these things. Wow. Um, there is extensive literature on the uh, possibility of alien life. Um, there's tantalizing clues to this. There is a pasuk in Shoftim which references a place called Maroz, and, and it's Yoshveha, the dwellers on Maroz. And according to Talmudic source, Maroz is, 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 is another solar system, wow. an extraterrestrial uh, life form, who in the context of the pasuk, the verse, seem to have some moral and spiritual responsibility. When we talk about angels, we think about them, whatever exactly angels mean, but according to the mystics, these are non-human intelligences mm. that seem to have some form of... Uh, um, ability to connect to God and godliness. Some consciousness. Some consciousness of some sort. So again, there are, there are Jewish sources that deal with this, and certainly halachists and, and other moral thinkers are going to have to uh, grapple, grapple with this and their rights. But could you have like meaningful and non-meaningful consciousness? Meaning, yes, there's a consciousness that an angel has, but it's not meaningful in the sense that it doesn't mean anything to them. It's not part of God's, it's not the, the purpose of God's plan, God, where God's let's say, emotions are and care is? So, so philosophically, the answer is yes. Um, we, we don't know, but we, we, as far as we think, um, there are other consciousnesses in, in non-human beings, in, in animal life and the like. Um, we think they're consciousnesses, and therefore there's emerging concern around the ethics of how we treat such animals. But we definitely don't think they have metacognition or metaconsciousness. They don't. Maybe a dog experiences pain, but as far as we understand, it doesn't think about why it feels pain, yeah. or, what it, or, or even in a sophisticated level about what it could do to avoid pain or to compare its pain to the pain of yeah. others. Um, as far as we understand, the powers of empathy are very limited. Yeah. Um, the ability to, to reason. A dog, as far as we understand, doesn't have anywhere near the ability to think about the fact of its consciousness or to engage in a discussion like the one we are. The, the problem is, as I said, we, we don't really know what are the scientific questions we need to be asking over here. We, we know so little about consciousness and, and how to know what conscious experiences are, are like, even of, of other humans, um, never mind creatures that differ with us radically like animal life and so on. I, I mentioned before the consciousness of a bat simply because there's, a, there's quite a well-known philosophical book like What's It Like to Be a Bat, which explores our, our inability to understand consciousness and the experiences of other creatures. And certainly when we look at meta-consciousness and, and higher order of consciousness, it's very hard to determine. Um, can consciousness emerge in a, in a, in a, out of an algorithm? Robots, Maybe consciousness yeah. can only be when it's embodied. Fascinating Talmudic source that considers the possibility that consciousness is only found in an embodied force form and can't be found in non-embodied consciousness. So um, wow. there, there are a range of really interesting Jewish sources around this, um, but certainly we may be approaching a time where we have to ask ourselves, is it possible we've created another form of consciousness? Would it have moral rights? Would it be wrong to switch off that, uh, that, uh, that uh, sentience or not? Um, and how on earth are we going to be able to recognize signs of consciousness? And if we struggle to do so in other humans or other life forms, how are we going to be able to recognize it in, in, a, in an algorithm? Very, very difficult to know. Um, the Talmud does speak about um, manufactured life, artificial life. Um, the golem, right? We think of the golem often as a sort of a, a legendary story. Um, however one understands these sources and, and the Talmud's relationship to mysticism, there is a, a Gemara that talks about, a Gemara in Sanhedrin, that talks about the creation of artificial life and halachic sources that consider the wrongs and rights, the rights of these life. There's a fascinating story between two Talmudic uh, figures, Rav and Rav Yosef, in which it seems to indicate that this golem created doesn't have a right to life 
since it's unintelligent, but were it to be intelligent, it would be, have the right to life. Classic halachic work of the last century, the Mishnah Brewer, written by the Chafetz Chaim, discusses whether a golem artificial life could join to a minyan, to the required quorum of uh, 10 people in order to create an environment for synagogal davening. Um, so there are Sounds amazingly sources. Lord of the Ringsy. <laughs> it's it, very difficult to know what to, uh, what to make of this. Use, yeah. But however one understands mystical or midrashic ideas, the concept of artificial life, again, is one that's explored by um, halachic sources and whether humans could create artificial life, which would have some rights of, uh, of living beings. Wow, really amazing. And by the way, when I said, you know, meaningful versus non-meaningful consciousness, I wasn't referring to animals as non-meaningful in the sense that we shouldn't have any yes. moral responsibilities. I meant more the question of like robots and well, AI and that. But even thing. within animals, certainly a different level of moral of course, responsibilities. Yeah, sure. Where everyone takes, and, and it may well be that as a society we aren't getting this right, and moral commitment to yeah. animals, um, it certainly can't be equated to the higher yeah, orders of consciousnesses. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned this issue about whether we can know we exist or not. There's this hilarious comedian on BBC that does these short documentaries where she sort of plays the idiot but talks about very serious topics uh, called Philomena Kunk. And she, she was talking about philosophy in one episode and she does this sort of monologue piece to camera at the start talking about, she said, philosophers for for generations have, have tr grappled with the question of can we know whether or not we exist? Yes. And uh, the conclusion we they've come to is that Yes, we can know that we exist. The evidence? Footprints. <laughs> <laughs> but um, let's, let's lastly talk about just questions around the future. Yes. Because this is the thing we spoke about when we, when we talked about this a few weeks ago. I find the idea of artificial intelligence really exciting because when I start to think about its possibilities, how it might a lot of people are worried about it's going to take away a lot of jobs, even in quite high, high level jobs like lawyers and maybe even doctors and accountants and people are concerned about that. But I look at it and I, my sort of flip side reaction is this strikes me as like an undoing of the curse of Adam, which is that Adam was told at the beginning of creation, when you enter this lowest world, you're going to have to work and you're going to have to work, do mundane work. And it's going to be, and this is something that so many people today feel like it's such a drag on our, our existence and it's such a, um, you know, they ask what's the point and it feels so mundane. And, and, but then the question is, okay, but, and I, I'm, I think I understand that there is an idea of the world to come being a world in which we, that curse is undone and we no longer work. But then the question is, what do we do? What does work look like? Um, do human beings sort of, surely we don't become redundant because God wants to bring us to this, this world. So can you give us a sense of what that world looks like? We spoke a bit about how there's going to be much more emphasis on human relationships and creativity, perhaps higher forms of intellectual um, pursuits. Do you want to talk a bit about that? And then we will we'll touch on some of the concerns people have. So I think I'd like to say two points really, and maybe that, that will also address some of the concerns. Um, I'm no, I, I don't know where the future will go, and, and obviously with any new technology, we do have to be careful and uh, responsible in how we use it. I, I think though the starting premise, I, I think Judaism has at its essence a, a profoundly optimistic view of life and the world. And from the opening scenes of creation and on, God has turned to us as humans and says, you have a responsibility to guard the world, yes, but also to work it to bring out its fullest potential. And only with human engagement can that potential be, be actualized. 
And we have a sort of, at, it, at its core, a, a sense of belief in human and human endeavour and human initiative and human ability to make the world into a, a better place, uh, technologically, morally, and, and in, in every sense, intellectually, academically, and in terms of our insight. We, we believe in humans. We believe in our ability to think, to master the world, to, to understand and think what the humans have achieved over, over, over the millennia in terms of our understanding of this wonderful planet within which we live. So I, I think our starting premise would be optimistic and would be sceptical about the desire to hold back new technology. Um, I think every time there's been new technology, people have been afraid of the uh, of unemployment, of their jobs being being made redundant yeah. um, from the Luddites and on. And and at each stage, all it's done is freed humans from the the more mundane and allowed greater time for human ingenuity and creativity and and the like. I mean, we mentioned before, you know, the ability of a, a AI to do the standard work of of drafting a contract can allow more sophisticated investigation, greater use of the intellect and the mind. Um, surely as society we could find productive, useful things for humans to do in the endlessly fascinating world of psychology and relationships and insights and creativity and art and spirituality and morality and wouldn't it be a wonderful world to live in in which we didn't have to spend so much of our time on, on the mundane material pursuit of survival. Civilization is built when societies no longer need to invest all their efforts just in, in the basic needs of shelter and and food and the ability to live and and there's such a world out there of, of greater um health needs and and physical health mental health relationships and wisdom and development and really understanding what goes wrong when when people struggle in terms of their well-being or struggle in terms of, of other areas of moral or in terms of moral failure or the like so i i think it's it's a limitation of vision and quite sad if we couldn't see economic prosperity and meaningful human pursuit in in greater positive development and a release from uh, just needing to struggle to survive. And I think it'd be very sad if the technology was held back. Um, you, one, one of the ways we learn the story of Bereshit, the story of the creation of the world, is that somehow the story of Adam and Eve in, in the Garden of Eden it isn't just a, a, a fairy tale. It's trying to tell us something about, uh, uh, deal with, with the paradox at the heart of human existence in which humans somehow feel we ought to live in a world in which we can develop, we can achieve spirituality and morality, and yet we're dragged down the whole time by, by material pursuit. We, we, we have minds that can grasp infinity and, and span the galaxies, and yet we're stuck in a, in a physical body only here on planet Earth for a few years. And the Bereshit story tells us that humans should have been like that. We should have been immortal. We shouldn't have had to engage in the material. And it's something went wrong. Maybe it always goes wrong when we're in paradise-like conditions, when there aren't frustrations and challenges and things that need to be dealt with. And yet we do aspire to get back to a world in which we won't have that struggle, in which quite literally weapons can be beaten into plowshares and we can, we can get on with each other. So I think our fundamental assumption should be that any new technology, yes, we have to learn how to use it sensibly and cautiously and carefully and not be stupid about it, but we should have a fundamentally positive view about it. And I, I for one, I, I think that the technology is pushing us to ever more understand what really matters in human existence. And I, I, I find very meaningful the Apostle Kanyemiyo, which says, uh, really to me speaks about these times that we're living in. The Apostle says, A wise person shouldn't glory in their wisdom. A, a, 
a, a powerful person, a strong person, shouldn't glory in their physical strength. But a wealthy person shouldn't glory in their economic prosperity. What should we glory in? What should we be proud of? God turns to humans and he says to them, you should be proud of Asis Chesed, of doing kindness, of mishpat, of seeking justice, of tzedakah, of charity and caring for the other. It's in this, Haskel it's in knowing me, says God, it's in knowing God and knowing godliness, and knowing what, the, the, making the moral decisions that really matters in life. So AI has told us, we've realized long ago that wealth doesn't matter. We, we, it's not real human achievement. We've realized long ago that physical strength, machines can beat us in physicality. AI is teaching us that maybe machines can even beat us in intellectual performance. Yeah. But even that isn't at the heart of what a human being is. The heart of what a human being is, the smile we give someone that we're passing in the street, the act of kindness that we give to a, a family member, the time we help a stranger across the road who's struggling, the time we notice someone who's looking a little down and we give them support. That, that's really what it means to be a human being. I think that's a beautiful way to end. And I guess the only final follow-up I wanted to say was, you know, thoughts to those who think this could destroy humanity. What final thoughts on that? I'm not a prophet. We have to be sensible and careful. But we believe in the human ability to, to master technology, to uh, create and do good. And please God, we should continue to be able to do that. And, and focus on what humans are really meant to be about. I fully agree. Diane Zobin, thank you so much thank for your time. Thank you so much, Ollie. Thank you. What a privilege and pleasure to speak to you, as oh, always. Mutual thank feeling. You. Thank you. Thank you.